Welcome to Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. I'm your host, Russ Roberts of Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Our website is econtalk.org, where you can subscribe, comment on this podcast, and find links and other information related to today's conversation. You'll also find our archives where you can listen to every episode we've ever done going back to 2006. Our email address is mail at econtalk.org. We'd love to hear from you. Today is May 8th, 2013, and my guest is Austin Fract. He is a health economist with educational background in physics and engineering. He has appointments with the Department of Psychiatry at Boston University School of Medicine, the Department of Health Policy and Management at Boston University School of Public Health, and the U.S. Department of Veteran Affairs. Since 1999, he has studied economic issues pertaining to U.S. healthcare policy with a recent but not exclusive focus on Medicare and the uninsured. And lately, he's devoted more attention to comparative effectiveness uh, based on observational data. He blogs at The Incidental Economist. Austin, welcome to Econ Talk. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Now, given your interest and background, I thought you'd be the ideal person to talk about the recent results that have come out of the Oregon Medicaid study. And for those of you who haven't heard of that study, it's uh, a very uh, unusual and potentially influential study uh, done by some very um, high-profile health economists. And Austin, you've been a, a very thoughtful commentator on that study as its results have been coming out. I want to start with some background on Medicaid, the program, the federal government program that also works with the states. How does Medicaid work? Uh, well, let, let's start just one half step before that, which is to say the first thing to know about Medicaid is that it's not Medicare. And I know a lot of people who aren't uh, well-versed in, in the U.S. health system make, can get confused between the two. So just really quick, um, the first-order approximation Medicare is a program for retirees. There are six people 65, old and older. It does also cover some people with disabilities and certain other health conditions. But, but, but basically, if you remember one thing about Medicare, it's that it's for um, the elderly population. Medicaid, um, if you only know one thing about Medicaid, the thing you'll know is actually not true but that thing would be that it's a program for um, poor people, people um, you can think of as near or around or below um, uh, 100% of the federal poverty level, which, by the way, I have a 2008 figure in front of me was about uh, $10,400 uh, $10, for a single individual. So Medicaid is a program for poor people. However, um, I think the next thing you should know about Medicaid is that it's, it's – um, you can think of it as really Austin, two programs. Austin, you said yeah, that's not true. You said it's yeah, not. Yeah, that's what I'm getting to. Okay, go ahead. Yeah, yeah. The next thing you'd want to know is that um, you can think of this as really two programs put together. One is that um, it is a federally um, um, federally mandated uh, program for people who meet certain conditions in addition to being poor, and these are people who are um, aged, uh, uh, old, blind, or disabled, or pregnant. Um, so specific, they're called um, categorically eligible, so specific categories of people. So these people can get on Medicaid if they're both poor and meet one of these categories. And that's not everybody. There's a lot of poor people who are not blind or disabled or pregnant or, or old. Um, you know, just uh, they're just poor. Uh, and so the second thing that a Medicaid program can do, and this varies by state, is expand to include uh, those other people who are poor but don't meet one of those categories. And, and so this will vary by state, and sometimes it involves uh, certain waivers from the federal government to, to expand in certain ways, um, but it's separate from the, um, from the sort of mandated core of the program. So one mistake people often make is they think, Medicaid, we've got a program for the poor. It's called Medicaid. Everyone who's poor is on it, and no problem. We've, they're taken care of. Well, that, that's not true. Uh, in many, many states, it's only people who meet certain categories, and this is one of the things that the Affordable Care Act, the new health reform law, is supposed to address, uh, or was supposed to address, we can get into the, whether it will, um, is that it, would, it would, was designed to expand Medicaid to, to include all poor people regardless of, of whether, whether they're categorically eligible right now. So if you are on Medicaid right now, either because you meet one of the categories or you are in a state that expands coverage beyond those special categories, you're, quote, merely poor. Um, what's the, what are the, what are the benefits? What happens to you when you use healthcare? 
Does that vary by category, by state? Um, but once you're on Medicaid, what happens to you? Uh, so mostly your health um, health care is paid for through the state program, and it, and it varies by state what the details would be. There may be some cost sharing, uh, you know, a few dollars in a, in a co-payment for a drug or a doctor visit. Um, there may be a small premium, uh, and, and these things can vary by income. So if you're very, very poor, you know, way down well below the poverty level, you know, maybe you'd have no cost sharing and, and no premium. If you're, you know, at the poverty level or, or even a little above, some, some states expand above, maybe you'd have some of those things. Um, but it, you know, it's, it's basically a, a, um, a healthcare, um, benefits program. So it would cover hospitalization, doctor's visits, you know, preventative care, um, uh, prescription drugs. Um, not it, what it typically doesn't include though is dental or um, vision. So um, you will find uh, many Medicaid beneficiaries or Medicaid enrollees who are getting mo- much of their care paid for, but they have horrible problems with uh, oral health. For example, their teeth are just in horrible shape, and and that's um, that's an issue for them. So if I'm a uh, a poor single parent and my kid's running a fever, and I, I'm worried that that she's got an ear infection, and I'm a Medicaid recipient, what do I do? In my case, well, in my case, I've got coverage, health insurance coverage through my employer, and I take yeah. my kid to my to her uh, pediatrician and maybe get a prescription. And that office visit is I don't know what it is, maybe twenty bucks, and I pay a very large premium to have that privilege of a twenty dollar visit, and my employer mm-hmm. pays part of that as well. Now, give me that story when I'm a Medicaid recipient. Uh, it's the same story, except as with uh, many people's plans, there's there would be a, a network um, of of doctors and hospitals that would accept the plan, and some may not. Uh, so, and that, and that's that's true of many people with private coverage as well. Uh, so, you could um, go to one of the um, uh, providers that accepts the coverage and have your care, um, you know, provided there, and and largely or entirely um, taken care of cost-wise uh, by the program. Depending on your state, whether there's a copay, the, the things you talked about before, right? Yeah, yeah. So, uh, like I said, there could be small copays, and that's going to vary by income and vary by state. Uh, so one, one of the standard lines about Medicaid is, is if you've seen one Medica- Medicaid program, you've seen one Medicaid program. Yeah. There are 50-plus D.C., uh, you know, so there's – and they're all different in some ways, so it's, it's – um, it's very hard to generalize uh, without basically lying a little bit. Uh, an advantage of that um, uh, diversity, however, is that uh, it's something that can be studied. Uh, you, right. you know, studies have looked at that variation. So let's get to that. the let's get to the the Oregon study, which has um, created a. Uh, it's been a great week for or a week and a half for maybe two weeks for empirical uh, economics. We had the Rein, Reinhardt Rogoff uh, study, which We'll be doing something on it in a few in a little bit in a few weeks here. But the Oregon study has created a, a firestorm of comments on in the news and the blogosphere. So tell us what that study uh, tell us give us the background on the study and, and what it's trying to understand. Yes. Yeah, so um, this study, th- there's so many great things to say about the study, but let's just start with um, how it came about. So uh, Oregon um, had closed. The part of its Medicaid program that is for people who are just poor, you know, it's got the, the you know, the mandated federally cate- federal categories, you know, that that arm of Medicaid's got to keep going. But they, for budgetary reasons, they had closed new enrollment into their um, their uh, their sort of expansion of Medicaid, and this is in the mid 2000s. And then uh, they they uh, they found, uh, you know, the elected officials decided and found some funding that they thought they could in, uh, open enrollment to about 10,000 people in 2008. But they did something uh, that, to my knowledge, no other state has done, or at least uh, it's not common, which is they uh, offered enrollment um, to people on a lottery basis. So they, they opened a lottery, and people could apply to the lottery and, and put their name on the list. Uh, and then um, they selected... Uh, um, some number of people off the list, uh, it's about 18,000, um, uh, no, 30,000, I'm sorry, 30,000 people off the list uh, out of 90,000 who applied to be permitted to enroll. And this was a random selection. Uh, and while this was going on, um, 
some some uh, investigators at Harvard and MIT heard about it on NPR, I think, and they said, "Oh wow, this is a random this is a randomized trial." You know, they're randomizing people into Medicaid, or or the um, they're randomizing them into the uh, the uh, 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 privilege of of applying for Medicaid. So the ninety thousand, the ninety thousand who applied, they didn't take the thirty thousand sickest or the thirty thousand no. richest or poorest. They just took a random thirty thousand of the ninety thousand. It was random, correct? It was random, and they said, okay, out of the list of ninety, you thirty can apply. You thirty thousand. Um, now, not all of those thirty thousand were. As it turned out, by the time they could apply, eligible, some of them lived out of state, some of them, uh, their income was too high at the time of application, or for a variety of other, re- other reasons, they, they weren't eligible. Some uh, just chose not to apply, maybe because they found other insurance or, or some, for some reason. Um, so uh, actually, about 18,000 who were uh, eligible to apply actually did. Uh, and then um, uh, ultimately, uh, when you get down to the, the study we're going to talk about, where they um, they did some follow-up surveying and so forth. The, the study that we're going to look at actually only has about 6,000 people uh, in the um, – in the uh, uh, well, I'm sorry, 6,000 people in the control group. Those are people who were, who were randomized that couldn't apply, and then 6,000 people in the, in the um, randomized to be able to apply group, of whom only about 25% actually enrolled in Medicaid. So it's a little bit confusing. You've, out, out of all these – yeah, out of all these numbers, what at the end of the day, when you look at all the data collection, you've got 6,000 people in a control group, 6,000 people in a, I'll call it a treatment group, but I want to say what treatment means in this context is we're, we're randomized to be permitted to apply for Medicaid. But how many That's, of them enrolled the in the program are right. covered by? So then you have, right, so then you have the enrollment group, which is a subset of that treatment group, and that's 25% of the treatment group, or about 1,500 people. Okay. So that's that's what the the latest study is looking at. Those are the numbers, the basic uh, underlying numbers um on what on what they have. And a little methodology here. So we've got the control group and we have people who are enrolled in Medicaid. Uh, how do mm-hmm. we we the the students of the of this program, how do we the investigators how do we monitor or assess their Data, health, health outcomes, demographic variables, et cetera. How do we? How many times? What's the, what's the format for how we learn about what happened to them under these two experiences? All right. So there's a, there's a number of data sources. So uh, first, you have information that was provided just in the application process. That's very basic information. Um, uh, I'm not quite sure what it all was, but you know age, things like age and sex, yeah, 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 just very basic. Uh, and then um, the investigators, uh, they had a lot of cooperation from the state of Oregon where this took place, and they got uh, administrative data. So these are things from the Oregon uh, Medicaid system itself. When, and when people enroll, they provide a lot more information, and they can look back over time to see if these people had enrolled in the past and get the whole history of, of um, Medicaid involvement with the Medicaid program for the sample they had. And they know when um, they visit the doctor, they know, et cetera. Yeah, I, um, I don't believe they pulled had access to all that kind of medical records. But what they did do is they did go to um, hospitals. Uh, uh, they did have hospital records. I'm not sure they had outpatient records. I didn't see that mentioned. But they had hospital system records, um, and they had uh, yeah hospital discharge data. Um, they also pulled in for reasons that are, are kind of a detail um, some uh, credit. Um, Credit data. Actually, that's not a detail. What what is a detail is they got some food stamp and um, um, some um, cash uh, welfare assistance data uh, from the state as well. But for the non participant, um, the non enrollees, the control group, how do they know yeah. stuff about them? Those six thousand. Uh, so there's six thousand so, so, people who who didn't didn't win the lottery, and now right. they get contacted presumably by uh, some health economists or the state of of Oregon saying, oh. You've been chosen to participate in this survey. How often – how do we get information about them? Right. So all the things I just mentioned are just the administrative data, and they had that on everyone. So they had all that stuff I just mentioned on everyone. Then they went to both the, um, the treatments and control groups and with uh, mail and phone surveys. Uh, and this was um, – uh, this was the, the mail and phone surveys were done 
um, prior to they, this group published a paper last year, and this was done prior to that, and I don't remember the date, but let's just say it was in 2009 or 10 or something like that. Uh, and uh, so they surveyed everyone by mail and phone, and they got a 50% response rate in that survey. And in that survey, which is very uh, high, ask, yeah, for, for, yes. for a mail survey, it's ridiculously high. Oh yeah, they followed yeah. up by phone, and yeah, they followed up by phone, yeah. Uh, and this is where they got uh, additional data on healthcare use and costs and financial strain, uh, health status and demographics. But this is all self-reported. Uh, so they didn't, they weren't going to these people's, uh, you know, doctors and asking them. They were going to the people themselves and saying, you know, have you visited the doctor in the last number of months or year? What, you know, what happened there? I mean, it's all structured, but this is how it's done. Um, but they didn't then, show up with a blood a blood pressure cuff and and measure things directly from them. Not in the mail and phone survey. Correct. Then. Yeah. Keep going. So that was so the data I just talked about the administrative data and the mail and phone survey data that was all available uh, a year or more ago and this group published a paper a year or more ago with that data. The most recent paper includes that plus in person interviews and the in on the in person interviews is where they collected biometric data so. This is blood pressure. They actually measured it. Uh, this is a blood sample, so they could get cholesterol levels, uh, blood sugar levels. Um, uh, so, so this is a lot of really granular detail on the actual health of the individual. It's, it's almost like, I mean, I, I don't know quite how they did it, whether they did it with nurses or someone, but it's almost like having a, a doctor visit in a way. You know, they just measured some basic things. Um, Reminds me of the yeah. NFL combine. You know, they did do a forty-yard dash, then the the IQ right. test. Anyway, so they did they they met him face to face. They gathered more data, and this is ongoing. Is that correct? So this this experiment's still going, or is it over now? So um, the the data collection is over because um, I believe the state uh, has subsequently um, expanded the program so that the lottery the lottery is not necessary. They don't they're not randomizing anymore, and and, and everybody who wants in can get in. Did the economists um, protest? <laughs> hey, you're ruining our study. Come on. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I know. It's true. Yeah, um, that, human, that human subjects <laughs> regulation is a bummer, isn't it? <laughs> uh, but what, what, what is forthcoming is uh, th there was some more data collection, more data analysis um, beyond what is reported in the latest paper. That's ongoing, and, um, you know, they expect to have more more results. You know, one thing they could do, I I – I believe they are going to do, but I, I wouldn't um, swear by it. Is you know you can you can monitor, for example, mortality, you know, uh, down the road because you can get public death records. And so even though you know these people were were, were once randomized and, and and now the study's over, you can look three, four, five years down the road and see if the couple of years experience on Medicaid versus not made a difference on things like mortality or you know th that could be done. Um, whether they're going to do that precisely, I'm not sure. So why have why has this recent um, set of results that has come out in the last uh, few weeks? Why have they been um, so controversial? What what were the findings? Well, let's first rather than talk about why they're controversial, why don't you summarize what what the most recent study uh, found? The most recent study of these data. Okay, so there are a number of findings that were statistically significant, and uh, I think my knowledge, are not controversial. Uh, and these are areas of, uh, I'll just give you the broad categories and then we can dig into them. So there's, they, they did a, a battery of, of analysis on financial protection. You know, how much, uh, how much does Medicaid protect you from uh, um, you know, high bills and, and uh, devastating uh, catastrophic costs of healthcare and so forth? Um, they have a battery of, of results on access and prevention. So how much easier was it for you to see a doctor and get preventative screening and so forth? They have results on um, uh, some results on health outcomes, uh, both mental and some physical health outcomes that were statistically significant, and they have results on cost uh, to report. Uh, and so um, we can go into some details on those. Those are not generally controversial. Um, there's then a set of results on some additional physical health outcomes, some physical health measures that were not statistically significant, uh, and it's it's those that are really the subject of uh, debate. Yeah, and summarize those. So those are um, things like uh, the effect of Medicaid on blood pressure, uh, changes in blood pressure, uh, cholesterol level, blood sugar control, which is related to diabetes, 
um, and medications for these things. Uh, and so, um, when you, when you at, when you look at, you know, all these things and they're, and they're all, several of them are, are measured in, in a few different ways. Uh, but when you look, kind of look at the table in the paper, there's, you know, maybe a good, uh, I don't know, a dozen or 15 or so uh, results that are staring at you all about physical health in one table and none of them are st- statistically significant. So, so it appears as if the study is saying, uh, we, you know, we, that Medicaid is, is not able to have an effect across all of these health measures. Uh, and that, the, the, the discussion over whether that's what the study is saying is what the debate is about. So we'll talk about that and then we'll talk about why it matters, but let's first just talk about these results. Now, I'm, um, I've argued as have many people that we ought to be more worried about health care than health insurance. Obviously, health insurance has certain aspects to it that are distinct from health care, but they're positive, uh, like comfort and and not fe- fearing financial distress. But it's also clear that healthcare insurance doesn't keep you literally healthy. Uh, there are other ways to get healthy. There are a lot of factors that affect your health that aren't related to medical care and and, and the use of the healthcare system, uh, nutrition, genetics, stress lifestyle, etc. So this is a big, messy area. But my general bias, which I'll get on the table, my general bias has always been that I really don't want to expand the current system that we have that allows people to spend other people's money, which then pushes up the use of medical care often without value and makes the whole system more expensive for everybody. Now, obviously, there's a lot of pieces to that that I know you don't agree with. But I want to start with the point that it's not so shocking to me, even though my I'm not a big fan of Medicaid. It, it's not surprising to me that in a two-year study that it didn't find very much of an effect. I, I, that's not the claim, I would think, of the value of having health insurance that over two years, your blood pressure is going to drop. You're going to be – your blood sugar level is going to drop if you're close to diabetes or have diabetes uh, is that really – are these really the measures that we want to judge uh, the value or lack of value of, of a federal and state subsidy to health care for poor people? Well, um, should should we use these measures or, or, or are you asking um, are people did, – did some people think that we both. would be in effect here? Both. Um, well, so, so I'll take the second one uh, first. Um, I think that there's a, a great diversity of claims. About this study, and um, in fact, uh, though I haven't looked back myself carefully, uh, I probably uh, suggested a year ago that the uh, the proof was in the pudding in terms of whether uh, uh, health insurance affected health in, in in results just like these. And in other words, I was I was looking toward this study to to um, you know put to rest this discussion whether health insurance uh, uh, facilitated an enhancement of health. Or not. Um, now, uh, when I said such a thing, I I was not aware. I could have been aware, but I don't think I was aware of the precise measures they were going to look at. I was certainly not aware of um, what some of the baseline rates of these things were and, and how much power the study had to to uh, uh, to, to detect um, changes if there were any. Um, and so um, it's it's not. Um, uh, in now seeing the results and having looked at the actual numbers they had, um, I'm not actually not surprised that, uh, you know, that they weren't able to show an impact. Um, now, are these the right things to look at? Um, no, I, I, I don't, I don't think so. Um, uh, it, it well, I'd say some of them are and some of them aren't, but I'm, you know, I'm not, I'm not a, uh, a physician, so it's a little hard for me to judge, but I'll just look at, look at diabetes in particular. Um, you know, we know clinically from clinical evidence that, uh, taking certain medications for if you have high blood sugar or diabetes, uh, really affects those things. I mean, it really moves the needle on your blood sugar, uh, and, and in terms of blood sugar control. And if, um, if, um, health insurance facilitates, you know, greater access to those medications and people follow through, then you ought to see a result. Um, as for blood pressure and other things, you know, um, maybe you can make the same argument, but, uh, you know, that's how I think the, the basic causal chain would go. 
And what's the bottom line for you of this of this latest of these latest findings? Are you so I, does it change oh, any of your priors? Does it or what's it do? Uh, it, it changed my prior on on what I thought this study was uh, was was designed to detect. So I spent uh, the better part of uh, this week digging into um, uh, details on the on the um, design of the study and and um, how it was uh, powered or how many uh, individuals were actually involved and what that meant for what it could measure. Talk, it, talk it, about what you mean by power because that's a statistical term that right. uh, most people aren't familiar with. So power is the um, uh, strictly speaking, it's 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 the probability that you know you, the way it works is. You, you're supposed to do this before you do a study. You're supposed to say, we're going to do a study of, you know, insurance first, not insurance. And we hypothesize in advance that insurance will, let's say, um, move someone's blood sugar from, you know, whatever it is at baseline to, to some, some lower, lower value. You know, if it's elevated, it'll bring it down. You know, um, insurance will have that effect. It'll act through people who have, obviously, who have high blood sugar and, and take drugs. Not everybody is like that, but, on average, it'll have this effect. And you say what that effect is in advance. And then you design your study so that it, it has enough sample to capture that effect. If you, if you, if you design a study with, you know, three people, uh, and you're expecting everybody to be cured from cancer, uh, um, or, or, you know, you're, you're just not, you're just not going to find that. Well, because um, that's too big an effect to expect, likely. Too in big an case. effect. It's you a combination big... of too big. Yeah, too big an effect and too small a sample. If you if you instead say I have uh, three people with it, with a certain stage cancer and and the intervention is I'm going to give them a certain drug or certain radiation treatment uh, and and one out of the three will be uh, will be uh, cancer free in in two years say uh, well uh, that may be a, a re- you know 30 percent response rate maybe that's reasonable to expect but you wouldn't you wouldn't expect to be able to measure it with very much precision with a sample of three people. Right, you want three thousand you know, or three million or three hundred. Yeah. yeah, but that so that's exactly right. So what is that number? You can calculate that number in advance. Uh, it's it's actually very simple, uh, and you can do it with online tools or you can do it in statistical software. And it's and it's this is a standard calculation for any application to uh, NIH, National Institutes of Health, or any study within the VA that you know that I do. Uh, you have to demonstrate that you have, quote, power to detect the hypothesized size that you think is reasonable. So you, 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 you suggest that this intervention will have such and such an effect. Then you uh, do a calculation saying, if it has that effect, we have enough sample, we're going to do enough data collection, or, or our, our databases are already big enough, such that if it has a conditional and it has that effect, we will be able to d- distinguish that from no effect. We have, you know, the error bars are small enough, basically. So just to take a everyday example for people who aren't used to these kind of arguments, let's suppose my hypothesis is that men are taller than women, which most of us are pretty pretty sure is a true statement. So let's say we want to show that. Uh, well, if we take a sample of six people, it could be that the three people, the three men you choose are very, just happen to be short men, and the three women you choose happen to be tall women, and it wouldn't be a very reliable finding if you found that the women were taller but as you go to three to six thousand men and women the odds get larger that the finding that the say the men are in fact taller than the women is more reliable i gave a bad example at first i should have said when when you chose six you chose tall men and short women you wouldn't know if that was true by chance that could just be that you chose tall men and short women but if you chose six thousand three thousand men and three thousand women the odds that that's true by chance your findings uh, gets a lot less likely so one way to talk about – you've written and others have, have written that this study was, quote, underpowered. Another way to say that is that the investigators presumed that the effects would be larger than they turned out to be. Is that correct? Uh, they could have done that. I, I'm, not, I'm not sure that's exactly what happened. Um, they could have either presumed very large effects. The, the, the problem with that hypothesis is that the effect, size, the effect sizes for which they are powered – are enormous. Um, you know, uh, I, I'm not. Well, I did actually do this calculation. So, for, for example, uh, one, yeah, one that I did was what this study found. The, the point estimate for the proportion of individuals who whose um, blood sugar 
uh, dropped below um, a, a value that's, you know, there's a value of blood sugar above which you're considered diabetic or near diabetic. And they, and they, um, they found that the proportion of people on Medicaid who had a blood sugar below that level, so they dropped from a diabetic or, or pre-diabetic uh, level down, um, was 20%. So, so this is just the point estimate. So 20% of the people in, uh, uh, 20%, um, fewer people in the Medicaid group, uh, had elevated blood sugar than in the control group. That's what, that's the point estimate. Yeah, big error bars, but that's the point estimate. So 20%. I, I computed that if that number had been four times larger, so 80%, if it had, had an 80% effect, then they would have been powered to have distinguished that from happening by random chance. It would have been statistically, it could have been statistically significant. Right, right. Um, they would have been powered for that, but an 80% effect rate huge. Yeah. from, from just giving someone insurance, uh, I, I don't think the investigators were thinking in advance, we expect 80%. What I think is much more likely and much more common in economics, you know, economists don't generally do power calculations. In fact, before a year or two ago, I had never done one. Um, hmm. Because what's what's more typical is is an economist uh, just says, well, we're gonna we're gonna study this issue. We have some data, which is which is fixed uh, in size. It's the size of the database. You know, we don't do surveys yeah, generally. We're stuck with it. Uh, yeah, we're stuck with it. We there's only you know in macro there's only so many countries in so many years. You know, I'm not gonna suddenly cook up ten thousand more con- country year combinations. So I'm just gonna go in and see what I can find. Uh, and some of it will be statistically significant because it has a big effect and some of it won't be. And that's just end of story. We don't do a power calculation because there's no, we can't change the effect size. You know, that's, na- that's quote nature or the, the system. We can't change it. And in economics, if you, if you can't change the uh, N, your sample, size your sample, there's no point in a power calculation except w- one point in a power calculation is to do is, is this even worth investigating in the first place? Am I likely to come up with informative results? You know, are my results, um, of any value? Cause you could know that in advance if, if you, if you thought you had a reasonable guess at an effect size or at least a, uh, a bound on it. So what I, what I, it's just a hypothesis. What I think is more likely in this circumstance is the investigators had a great opportunity. It's a great study. They did a lot of good things. The design here is fantastic. We didn't go into some of those issues, but we could. Um, and, uh, they, they actually pre-specified all their analysis. So this wasn't a fishing expedition. They, they put online, right. here's it's what we're going to do. Yeah. Yeah. That it's, it's exceptionally impressive. And, um, and then they just went out and did it. Uh, if they did a power calculation in advance, I've never seen it. Um, uh, I don't think it's, it exists anywhere publicly. Um, and chances are they didn't, I'm not sure I would have. But the bottom um, line, it, the bottom line is that on a, on a number of, predetermined important health measures and i would actually call them proxies you know maybe we'll come back to that later but mm-hmm. it, it's not actual health it's things that as you said biometric measures they're uh they're things like blood pressure and blood sugar etc they didn't find any effect now they did find some effects though so why don't you talk about yeah. what they found that was significant in them well the the the, the headline of big effect is financial protection so uh, um, out-of-pocket medical expenditures that were above 30% of in- income. So this is this is their kind of definition of a catastrophic expenditure. That was basically dropped to, to zero. I think it dropped to 80% from a baseline rate of 5.5% down to 4. Point something percent. So Medicaid virtually wiped out the chance that you know medical expenses are gonna gonna clobber you. That's that's completely predictable given what Medicaid is uh, or health insurance in general. Um, uh, the likelihood of medical debt came down by 20%, uh, and the proportion of people borrowing money or not paying off medical bills was cut in half. So a lot of financial protection, that's actually to be expected, and those are, those are reasonable. Um, big increases in access, uh, and this kind of relates to financial protection. You know, if you don't have to pay for care, uh, and it's, quotes, you know, someone else's money, it is, um, you're going to have, you're going to much more readily go in and, and, and get preventative screening. So they have big reductions in, or big increases, I'm sorry, in, in women getting pap smears and mammography, uh, a 20% increase in probability of getting, quote, all needed care. Um, I'm not sure if that's self-reported or they defined what they meant by all needed care, but big increases in access. 
And then there's some um, really significant changes in health outcomes. The, the big one there is um, depression diagnosis. So right after the lottery, um, they could look at who was diagnosed for depression, and they found that um, there was a 30%, uh, I'm sorry, they found that there was an, uh, an increase in probability of depression diagnosis right after the lottery. Um, but over time, the, the people on, um, so, so this is, a, th- why would be there, there be a big increase in depression diagnosis? This is, this is just an access thing. So more people are going to the doctor, um, and they're, they're getting diagnosed. There's high, higher rates of diagnosis. And one hopes, but I don't know whether all those depression, additional depression diagnoses are, are real. These people are actually depressed or whether it's just a, um, you know, increase in diagnosis. You know, yeah, we, I mean, we spent some time on this program, as I think you know, talking about the challenge of correctly diagnosing depression, the interests mm-hmm. of the pharmaceutical industry in encouraging diagnosis of depression, et cetera. Um, so that's right. a tricky thing. But they did find an increase in diagnosis, but more than and that, then right? A, yeah, and then a decrease over time in, in, um, in people screened for diagnosis. So they have an increase in people diagnosed. And then they, they, with their interviews, they could do a screening for diagnosis uh, um, later uh, through a, a series of questions that, that are, you know, validated for this purpose. And found that the di- the, um, the, the screening positive rate came down 30%. So people were diagnosed with depression, and then and then they were uh, came it came down by 30%. Um, whether they were actually by this measure depressed later on. So this is. Um, you know, an improvement in impression in, in depression from, you know, post lottery diagnosis rates. Right. And so, they had an improvement. Go ahead. Which we don't know exactly what the source of that is, but it it appears to be cor- it's correlated with being in this in the Medicaid group. So it's it could be related. Right. Um, and uh, well, the design here, uh, I think I think the investigators would be comfortable saying it's it's a causal effect based on the design. Um, but we could get into whether, you know, whether, whether you're comfortable with, uh, using causal language. But just to finish out the mental health thing, um, they had found statistically significant improvements in self-reported mental health and, and in proportion of people, um, saying that their health was good or better than the prior year. Uh, and we, we talk about diabetes. Well, we talked about there was a, there was an increase in probability of diabetes diagnosis. And medications, and those are both statistically significant. And you might wonder about cost of all this. There was an increase in cost expenditure to the state of about uh, twelve hundred dollars. This isn't all expenditure to the state. Uh, it's an increase in cost uh, overall. So people, right, um, who were not enrolled in Medicaid, they're just spending out of pocket. But the increase in overall cost of care due to Medicaid from all sources is uh, twelve hundred dollars per per person. Yeah, per year. So and that's from their increased use of mammography and all the and the other tests and et cetera that they had access to, presumably. Right. Right. So let me play the skeptic here. Um a while back, and you'll tell me when, there was a, a famous study that was vaguely like this. It's not exactly like this. Vaguely is not the right word, that but it was designed to see how people responded to health insurance. It's it was done by the Rand Corporation and it was Shocking and controversial and remained contra- remains controversial. They found that people who faced if, correct me if I'm wrong, people who faced lower prices uh, used more medical care as economics would predict, but their health outcomes were basically the same as people who did not get the benefit of those programs. Um, you could say it's not surprising that people who win the lottery get in a better mood eventually, uh, that they have fewer financial problems. That's not a very good test of Medicare's of efficacy. It's a it's a result of giving people more free stuff. Uh, that means they're going to have less financial, fewer financial problems. In other words, rather than expanding Medicaid, maybe what we ought to be doing is giving people money. Um, so as the skeptic, which I am, uh, the RAND study, now this study, uh, there have been other studies, um, Levy and Meltzer in 2008, Kronik in 2009, that seem to suggest that health insurance does not – have much of an impact on health. Uh, it maybe makes you feel better. Maybe it might let you sleep better at night. Don't want to. That's not. It's not unimportant, but it's relatively. It's a health insurance is a relatively expensive way to to get those outcomes, and so 
the question is, as someone, and you're not alone, there, there are a lot of people who believe that we should be expanding health insurance and availability in the United States either through public programs like Medicaid or other ways we could do it. Where's the evidence? So I'm going to um, I'm going to disagree with one nuance in what you said, and then and then agree with a lot of it, and then and then focus in on on where the action is. So the disagreement, and this and this is all what's been going on since this latest study came out in the last week. The disagreement I have with what you said, or maybe what you implied, you might not have quite said it, but if if you said it, I, I will disagree with it. <laughs> so I'll put the words in your mouth, That's and then fine. I'll disagree. Go ahead. With it. The disagreement it would be this latest study. Because of the, the power issues, the, basically the low sample size combined with the low um, reasonable expected um, uh, effect rate of effect, effectiveness, basically, of Medicaid, um, is uninformative on, on, on key physical health measures. It's just the error bars are just too wide. Now, that doesn't mean it's possible that Medicaid had zero effect. That is possible. I think what it more likely means is that uh, – it, me- it means what I said. It means it's uninformative. But I think what's more likely true is Medicaid may have a small positive effect, and this study could not could not detect it. However, you're correct to point out that there's lots of other work we can look at, and uh, including the Rand Health Insurance Committee, including the Levy and Meltzer study, uh, and others. And I think when you look um, really carefully at those, um, in fact, the publications bear this out, and what the authors say is that, uh, you know, where the um, the action is, you know, for, for most people, health insurance doesn't do much because most people are healthy. I mean, health insurance doesn't do much Correct. for their health, but Correct. it does a lot for for spending. It does a lot for access. Does a lot for financial well-being and peace of mind and so forth. All those things. I agree with that. That's the part I agree with. For people who happen to be sick or poor, and or poor or you know both really, um, you know, public assistance for Taking care of their health care um, does have an impact. Uh, Rand, the Rand study showed that. Levy and Meltzer uh, point that out. Um, and so that's where the action is. Now, um, I think you're right to say there's other ways to help those people. Uh, and Medi- Medicaid is currently configured may not be the right approach. And uh, I think that's completely valid discussion. But just on the, on the evidence alone, um, I think um, – I think the evidence is um, consistent with the idea that uh, there are people for whom health care is helpful, um, but, it, but that's really not most people when they're healthy. Uh, and in the, our current system, health insurance does facilitate access to that help. And let me just add one more uh, troubling piece to this, which is we hear a lot about the value of preventive care, and I had Eric Topol on was a program a few episodes back, and he made a shocking observation to me. This relates to this study, which is the Oregon study, which is that the statin drugs that reduce uh, cholesterol, uh, they don't reduce it for most people. And for the ones that, that have reduced cholesterol, it's not very well correlated with better health care, better health outcomes. So we, we have all these drugs that reduce cholesterol, but they don't. it's not clear that they reduce your risk of a heart attack even though cholesterol has something to do with a heart attack, which is weird, but that's the reality. Um, and so to me, and I'm going to put the shoe back on my foot in a minute because I'll be done picking on you in a second. But, but for me, the, you know, the challenge is, is that shouldn't we just be taking care of catastrophic health care risks rather than pushing the country toward what – to me is similar to what we do with Social Security, which I think is nuts, which is everybody gets it. Rich, poor, we all get it. We all contribute. We all get it back. And that allows us to do some subtle redistribution within uh, donor uh, payers and recipients. And similarly, we have a bunch of people who have good health and bad health. We have rich people and poor people. Everybody's going to get free health care, get to use the system without any worries at all, even though most of us most of the time don't have that much value from that privilege and we end up paying a lot for it because we've lowered the cost artificially, the price artificially, and encouraged usage as a result, which pushes up the, the cost. So it, what's the – you know, many of the people who 
who designed and executed this study are major proponents of uh, the Affordable Care Act, including Jonathan Gruber of MIT. You know, where's the where's the evidence for their view, for their viewpoint, given this what we found so far? Um, well, apart from Jonathan Gruber, I'm not actually sure what the uh, position on the Affordable Care Act is on, on everyone on the study. And, you know, he was involved, but he wasn't a uh, principal investigator. Fair enough. Um, um, and, and and this this study, um, I mean, I, in large part, I agree with what you what you said about um, providing public benefits, you know, for everybody, rich, poor, you know, uh, sick, healthy, so forth. It, you know, when you have finite resources, even even accepting which you may not, but even accepting that you're going to use uh, public funds for support, those those funds are 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 finite. Um, society is only willing to bear so much. Uh, you know, witness the debate over you know tax rates and so forth. And given those constraints, um, it's perfectly reasonable to say, well, we're just not going to provide free health care to you know millionaires, uh, but everybody gets Medicare. So. Uh, and not just that. Yeah, I think We're not going to give my wife and myself uh, an incredibly low price for our pregnancies and deliveries, which we, you know, had some control over. Strangely enough, yeah, uh, it's not catastrophic. It's not unexpected. It's not insurance. I go to the yeah. doctor every every year, every two years, depending on my schedule when I feel like it. Uh, you know, that's a checkup. That's not shouldn't be part of insurance. Right, so there's so there's a lot one can debate. There's, there's a lot of there's a lot of things bound up in all this, and that would take maybe two more hours, if not one. Um, but but where where I was kind of headed was um, so uh, we spend a lot on Medicare, and that's for everybody once they reach a certain age, uh, regardless of their income and assets. Uh, although there is some there is some means testing of of the premium, but you know n- nevertheless, um, we also spend a lot. On uh, or don't collect taxes on um, employer-sponsored uh, health insurance, which is nuts. and there it's even more <clears throat> yeah, perverse. That's not because not <laughs> it, it, it. It's not only that rich and poor people alike are getting a benefit. Rich people are getting a bigger benefit. Correct, because they have higher marginal yeah. tax rates. Very strange. Very strange. You wouldn't. I, I, it's hard to imagine why you would design it this way. Uh, you know, you wouldn't. Many of us. You know, you wouldn't. <laughs> now. Now, uh, what we're spending uh, out of out of public funds on on Medicare per person uh, is about is about on the order of ten thousand dollars a person. And what we're spending, what we're foregoing in tax collection on on employer uh, sponsored insurance is about five thousand dollars on average for each uh, 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 insured worker and family. That includes family um, plans too. Uh, now, what this study and what the really uh, the debate is about uh, in states right now. Is about poor people. I mean, legitimately poor people, uh, objectively poor people. It's not a mix of poor and rich. It is a mix of healthy and unhealthy. Oh, but that's correct. these are poor people, and um, and the cost under the Medicaid program of providing um, a benefit to them that, well, we can argue is it is it is it like employer-sponsored health insurance? Is it like Medicare? Yeah, that could be a debate. Maybe it's maybe it's worse. Maybe it's better. Maybe it's the same. But it's akin to it. It's it's basic. Uh, apart from dental and, and, and vision, perhaps it's 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 pretty fun, um, pretty standard uh, benefit package. The cost of that, um, for a variety of reasons, is, is extremely low, like you know, three, four thousand dollars a person, and uh, and these are all poor people. And and um, you know the the debate right now is whether states should, uh, well, with help from the federal government, expand their programs uh, to cover everybody under that, so that you know, all poor people have at least this level of, um, of protection. And, um, you know, is this study informative on that question? Um, well, I think, I think it's, um, I think it's more informative on the question of, uh, do poor people benefit from, uh, assistance? And uh, in this case, the assistance was a specifically designed Medicaid program in in, in Portland or in and around Portland. I, I didn't mention that all the in-person um, stuff. So all the data in this in this study was in and around Portland, Oregon. Even though the expansion was uh, statewide, this focused uh, this study was focused in the Portland area. Um, um, anyway, it was it was um, 
it, it was designed, you know, around that program. Uh, but states have uh, some flexibility to to uh, design different varieties of um, of Medicaid. They they may not have as much flexibility as you or I would like. Uh, um, but broadly, I think it does address the question whether um, poor people benefit from some assistance, and uh, I think it's clear they do. And and um, th- that's what you'd expect. Yeah. I, I don't uh, is that is that benefit is the nature of that benefit worth the cost? Uh, you know, that's that's a point one could debate. Could the, could that benefit be reconfigured or delivered in a different way that's more efficient or uh, helpful? Um, no doubt, it could be. Yeah. So let me let me um, let me put the shoe on my foot. Uh, I don't know what the right metaphor is, but uh, some of this discussion, and I'm not talking about our discussion. I'm talking about the general discussion in the blogosphere of of how the the reactions to this and and how. Now, there's a lot of um, jumping up and down by one side and a lot of, oh, it's no big deal on the other. So the, the people like me who are – and I, this is not my reaction as I made clear earlier. But a lot of people who don't like the Affordable Care Act or don't like Medicaid generally, they've been jumping up and down saying, see, this proves we've been right all along. Medicare is a waste of money. Uh, the people who like the Affordable Care Act, who like Medicaid, want to see it expanded say, oh – it's uh, it's only two years. It's it's underpowered. It's only one 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 survey. Reminds me a little bit of the recent empirical work that's come out about the minimum wage that says it doesn't have any effect, um, doesn't reduce employment, doesn't hurt uh, low wage, low skill workers. It actually just gives them a nice raise. And I have to say that when I see that literature, my first thought is to explain it away because I believe that that there is a an incentive effect to employers of making workers more expensive. So I say things like, well, you know, when you have a relatively low minimum wage, as we do, where only a few people are affected by it, it's not surprising that when you raise it by a relatively small amount, still only affecting a small number, it's going to be very hard to tease out the effects uh, because most people simply aren't affected by the law. Obviously, if the minimum wage goes from Seven twenty-five to nine dollars and fifteen cents. Not going to affect your salary or my salary or my employment or your employment. And so, an econometric study that tries to evaluate the impact will often, I would say, and it might not find any impact. Of course, all the studies that found a big impact, which is what the previous literature was, my side waved those around and said, "See, see, it has a big impact." And when these new studies come out, they say, "Well, you know, it's." a small population there that's a phone survey it was done the methodology is wrong so i just want to reflect on the fact that uh it's very easy to over exaggerate uh the significance and i'm using that in the non-statistical sense of the word the importance of any, any particular finding because uh, confirmation bias and so i'm just curious if you want to just react to that in, in terms of the People you know and have talked to, uh, the people you blog with, uh, is there some hunkering down? And we saw the same thing with uh, Reinhardt and Rogoff. The people who've been talking about debt, oh, well, it's, the result still holds. Those who are worried about debt said the result still holds. People on the other side said, see, we told you all along this whole thing's a, it's a sham. We don't have to worry about debt. Uh, so yep. just reflect on that. Uh, well, I, I think that's right. I think um, I think there is some – Hunkering down and um, you know shifting of em- emphasis uh, to you know just focusing on the statistically significant findings and sort of explaining away those that aren't. I've seen that. Um, I, I don't. Uh, I don't like it. Uh, I don't like to see that. Um, that's not how I've approached it. Um, you know the way I approach things is uh, you know one study is not definitive. You need to look at a body of work, and one would hope. A body of work uh, using different methods, different data from certainly different people, hopefully people of different um, uh, ideological uh, persuasions, if, if possible. If they all are kind of pointing in the same direction, or not all, but uh, you know, a preponderance of that in the same direction, it really increases your confidence that that's the right way to think about it. Um, having said that, I think you also have to weigh um, the methodological strengths and limitations of each study. So, in this case, it's a randomized trial, uh, randomized controlled trial, albeit with uh, some leakage and crossover and so forth that they addressed uh, in, in, with a, a statistical uh, approach that's you know quite, um, quite reasonable and accepted. 
And I think um, for that reason, I think this study carries a lot of weight. Um, however, one of the limitations of the study, and this is something that uh, I was a little bit distressed to see, very few people recognized on either side of the debate, uh, one of the limitations is it just didn't have enough sample for certain questions. Had enough for some, not enough for others. And, you know, I don't think anybody would, uh, well, no rational person would want to base a decision on, uh, uh, you know, undersampling. And like you gave some examples earlier, just, you know, if you're, if you're going to try to assess something, uh, you want to make sure you sample enough of the world to be confident that you're not just reacting to noise. So on some questions here, what is reported is not that much better than noise. Now it is better than noise because, you know, they had some sample, but the error bars are really big. Uh, and so, um, and this is um, something you can just compute, you know, how big a sample would they have needed, and therefore this one is underpowered and that one isn't. And it's objective. Uh, you can do that on every study. You can go back to every study and do that if you want. Um, and so I, I, was, I was a little bit, um, I've been a little bit uh, uncomfortable with some of the responses to this, either accepting the uh, the results that aren't statistically significant as as um, as informative as they accepting them as informative or more informative than I think they are. Uh, I think they're relatively some of them are relatively uninformative. So here's uh, how we could imagine life working. It doesn't work this way, right? But we could imagine the following. And um, again, I'm I'm picking on um, I'm picking on you a little bit, but it's I could easily pick on myself. So uh, I've been much worse picked on. <laughs> Yeah, it's it's mild. So so here's the here's the, the the world we could live in. So you said the sample's underpowered. I would I, again, even though I like this result, confirms some of my biases. I think two years is a is a very short time. I, I know some people are confident it would be a long enough time, but let's suppose I said to you, okay, we're going to expand the time span of this study. We're going to run it for ten years, not two, maybe thirty years. Let's run it for mm -hmm. thirty years. Let's quadruple or sextuple the sample size. I'll make it as big mm -hmm. as you want. Make it 50,000. Yep. We got 50,000 people here, 100,000 people in each group. We're running for 20 years, and let's, we'll make a deal. And this is yeah. you know, along the lines of former econ talk guests, Robin Hansen or Brian Kaplan. They're both big on bets. Uh, yeah. And I'll say, look, if it comes out that even then it doesn't have an effect, would you change your mind? Oh, yes, I would. Right? You, well, you say yeah, you would. I would. And, I, and again, to put the shoe back on my foot, okay, well, if you if you raise the minimum wage to $25 an hour, well, then you'd find an effect. Then I have to be honest with myself. When they raised it from five something to seven, from five, I think it was 515 to seven and a quarter, I would have thought there'd be a big effect. Some people claim there is. I don't think it's pretty hard to tease out of the data. So the question, I think for most of us, when we get these kind of results that don't confirm our priors, you usually find a way to say, yeah, I think, yeah, the methodology, they're looking at the wrong measures, they didn't do this or that right. It's very hard to find a definitive study, and um, it's not the way the world is. Well, I don't know how many, uh, pr probably, uh, I think you're right, and and probably everybody, uh, almost everybody, um, says they're not biased. Um, <laughs> yeah, they, but, they do say but, that, yeah. Yeah. Uh, I, I like to, to admit honest. it, you know, Austin. That's that's well, that's one of my thing, thrills in life is admitting I'm biased. Thing I will admit, and and this has happened to me, is uh, I actually like it when um, what I thought was true is overturned by something, some evidence that I'm I'm convinced of. I actually really like that. I would have been more pleased to have this study come out and say, well, we had the power to detect this minuscule uh, increase or you know minuscule improvement. And we couldn't even find that. Look at this error bar. I mean, it's just, and we couldn't even find it. And um, but you're unusual. Uh, I, I would then. I would. Well, you know, a number of people reacted that way. There, if you um, if you just look around in the early first few days after this uh, study came out, a number of people said, "Okay, uh, we're we're just basically um, willing to uh, agree that um, you know Medicaid maybe doesn't have a big effect on 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 these health measures or on 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 some basic health." Measures that we thought it would, uh, but but look, but look at the financial uh, benefits, and and look at the right. access, and look at yeah, the, the look at mental health. Now, now the mental health result that is that is really well, provided you believe what it's saying, and many people do. Uh, it's really big. I mean, even if half of it uh, is true, it's it's a big result. Um, it's 
there's a lot of well-being there. In fact, in the prior paper a year ago, the authors estimated, and they did some back-of-the-envelope calculation uh, using some other wor- work, that the improvement in mental well-being, uh, if, if you wanted to get that level of improvement from uh, an income enhancement alone, you'd have to double income. So it was a big, it was a big effect. You know, it, uh, you know that's, that's the only problem with that result is it, is it suggests that for people who are switching jobs and are going to double their salary, they they would still take the job if if the if the employer said, hey, we'll give you free Medicaid, we'll give you free access to Medicaid. But I I'm being facetious, obviously. If that's a real effect, that that's 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 quite extraordinary. And I, there is the question about whether there are other ways to achieve it. But that that statement about doubling income suggests it would be very expensive to achieve it in other ways. We, we'd have to yeah. know if that was reliable. I don't know. Oh, sure. I'm not. I'm not saying we should base policy on that alone. But but it's just a way of um, of interpreting the result. Uh, in any case, um, as it turns out, I, I just don't think this study is is as informative as some people think uh, on certain measures. And, and I, uh, you know, I did this power calculation. It's on my blog. Um, in fact, I did, I have two posts about it and I was really worried I did it wrong because I don't do power calculations very often and, and they can be tricky and, you know, getting the statistics right and so forth. And so I did it and I said, oh, well, what I calculated was the You're sample very, would have I've had the post. about, I read the post. Yeah, I'm very cautious. You're very cautious. Well, I was, well, the, the result was surprising to me. It said the, the sample would have had to been three, about three and a half to five, depending on the measure, times bigger. And I'm looking at it saying, you know, but how could that be? You know, five times bigger. That's, that's a really strong statement about how underpowered this was. And so I, um, I, I calculated a couple different ways. I went online to get a different tool so that, you know, maybe I was using Stata incorrectly. And I had some biostats people look at it and they all, they all checked off. You know, they do this like for a living. And an, another professor I found on Twitter had done his own calculation. He said it was right. And another guy, this is, this is a great thing about blogging. Another fellow in the comments went back. I didn't do this by formula. I just plugged it into, you know, these online calculators. This other guy said, well, you know, here are the formulas. And I just, you know, worked through the math and I'm getting a different result. And we went back and forth and figured out why he's actually using the formulas to calculate something different than I was. And so we worked it all out. Um, so, uh, the, the, you know, the, the point is, um, this, uh, this is really, uh, it is really a, a valid um, objective statement that it was underpowered on these questions. And I was uh, su- so surprised by that, I, I didn't want to believe it myself. Um, but it's just, it's just what it is. Yeah. And then, you know, I, I don't, when I express my skepticism about our ability to deal with bias, I don't want to suggest that people can never confront things honestly. Obviously, we do sometimes face evidence that forces us to change our mind or, Sometimes when we're skeptical about the importance of result, it, we should be. It, it, maybe it's not informative. Um, and of course, the, you know, again, for those of you who haven't been following this, you'll now start to notice it in the paper and in the blogosphere. And it, it's going to be an issue that continues to get discussed. And I want to close with the implication, not the implications, just some factual stuff because I don't know. What does the Affordable Care Act have to say about Medicaid? And because yeah. I know that's going to interact with these findings, we're going to people are going to be yelling about them in the in the next election and and elsewhere. So, what does the Affordable Care Act require or or encourage Medicaid at the state level to do? Yeah, I'm I'm really glad you're coming around to this because this is the key question. So, uh, and you mind if I just take a minute to do like the history uh, on this? Um, no, go ahead. Going back to so so the designers of the law and as it was passed, the the, the whole idea was um, every state was mandated to expand Medicaid up to everybody with, uh, up to a hundred and 138% of the poverty level. You'll see 133 written, but there's a 5% income disregard. So it's effectively 138% of the poverty level. Uh, and, and every state had to offer Medicaid, um, to everyone, you know, with that income or below. And then, uh, so this was, uh, debated in, in the courts as, as, uh, as possibly too coercive. So, uh, there was a, a, you know, claim by some states that, you know, this, this just, um, coerced states into, into doing things they don't want to do. And, and, and the, the coercion, co- coercion here was that, um, if states didn't make this expansion, the federal government could, could, uh, withhold all funding for all Medicaid, even the existing part of the program. And so it could just, you know, either a state does this expansion or they have to wipe out their Medicaid program was basically the, the, uh, the stick behind this. 
And, uh, you know, if that's the deal, I mean, there's, there's no state that's probably gonna, gonna walk away from the expansion if that's the deal. Cause it's, it's very coercive, coercive. Not only would it affect a lot of people in the state, but it would devastate the, uh, the health system. I mean, there's, there's a lot of money flowing to hospitals and doctors and, um, uh, state legislatures and it's not gonna walk away from that. So this went all the way to the Supreme Court. And the Supreme Court came out with a ruling last summer that said, well, you know, everything's fine. And they ruled on a lot of things about the Affordable Care Act, including the mandate and so forth. You know, basically, basically, you know, everything's fine with the Affordable Care Act, except we don't like this Medicaid coercion thing. We, we don't like the way the expansion's done. Let's, let's make it optional. The court just said states have the option to expand under the way the law uh, specifies, or they could not expand and just keep the existing program and then, you know, leaving many people without the, uh, the option of Medicaid. And so now every state is deciding whether they're expand or not. And, uh, and now what, what expand means, uh, is not just one thing. There's actually uh, quite a bit of room in terms of how Medicaid is specifically designed. And, um, Arkansas, for example, instead of expanding in a sort of traditional public program way, they've decided to expand by just having all of the, uh, the expansion population uh, be um, uh, eligible to go get private insurance through the health insurance exchanges that are going to be set up. So instead of having a separate public Medicaid program, they're going to just put all those people on the exchanges. And there's a whole debate about, you know, will that cost more and um, what are the advantages and disadvantages of that and so forth. But, but the point being, um, states have the option to not expand Medicaid at all or expand it in some, uh, you know, there's a range of options that they might uh, they might consider in how they design their expansion. And let's close with your thoughts on um, how the study is going to affect that 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 outcome. Uh, I my prediction is the study will be used to uh, in part of the debate. It's a little bit about like the uh, Reinhardt and Rogoff work, where you can say, you know, did this study influence policy, or was it just used to justify um, positions that would have been taken anyway? But I think you'll have this study um, cited um, by state legislators and others debating whether they should expand or not. And some of them may cite it and say, look, Medicaid, this study showed that Medicaid, uh, you know, there wasn't, um, didn't improve uh, physical health, you know, or something. Or they might even just say it didn't improve health at all. You know, um, here's the study. And I'm sure some people will use it to say, you know, look at the result on uh, on depression. You know, look at the financial benefits. This is hu- hugely uh, valuable. And I think very few people will say what I would say, which is this study showed some positive uh, benefits of Medicaid, and this study was uninformative on some others. Uh, and meanwhile, um, uh, you know, the the uh, the actual choice here, is, you know, is not. Um, you know, some other thing like giving people cash, that's just not on the table. The choice is whether people get some assistance or none, poor people. Uh, and, um, you know, I come down on the give them some side rather than none. Um, but I, I think very few people are gonna, going to uh, use this study in that way. Well, thanks for helping us understand it. My guest today has been Austin Fract. Austin, thanks for being part of EconTalk. Thank you. It was my pleasure. This is Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. For more Econ Talk, go to econtalk.org, where you can also comment on today's podcast and find links and readings related to today's conversation. The sound engineer for Econ Talk is Rich Goyette. I'm your host, Russ Roberts. Thanks for listening. Talk to you on Monday.